news that got splashed over the airwaves this last week is easy to miss a little news piece that seems to me was a really important piece of the news cycle. Some of you probably noticed it and paid attention to it, but others may not have seen it. It's a bit of news that actually took place on June 23rd, but for some reason with small local news, they don't make the larger news cycle until a bit of a delay. This is a news item that centered in Weatherford, Texas. If you're unfamiliar with Weatherford, Texas, let me give you the context of where it's at. And my context is based out of my journey from the past. I, some of you know, used to live in Oklahoma City and was very familiar with the drive that goes from Oklahoma City down into Texas. So you take Interstate 35 out of Oklahoma City and head directly south. In the southern portion of Oklahoma, you pass through the Arbuckle Mountains, which are about as high as Hill Street is right out here. They have no mountains in Oklahoma. This is about the highest spot, and so they call them the Arbuckle Mountains. They're a good toboggan run. I don't know if they're worth much else than that, but um, past the Arbuckle Mountains, you come to the Red River, a dividing point between states. And then you're getting close to the two major metropolitan areas, Dallas and Fort Worth, separated by about 40 to 50 miles. And on the north end, you come to a place where I-35 splits. You can go to the left to 35E, and you make your way into downtown Dallas. Or you can go to the right, 35W, head to the west, and go down toward Fort Worth. If you take that pathway, you'll quickly come across the major metropolitan airport, DFW, past the enormous Grapevine Mall, into the heart of Fort Worth, very much still a cowboy town with all of its metropolitan feel. And then you can take Interstate 20 due west out of Fort Worth go another 30 or 40 miles out into rural country and you'll come across Weatherford. Relatively small town, large enough to have good commerce, good group of people that probably have been for multiple generations in Weatherford sitting right in Parker County. Parker County has its county courthouse right in downtown Weatherford. And on June 23rd, there were eight um, prisoners who were awaiting trial that had been marched to the lower rooms beneath the courtrooms that were above in this courthouse building. They had come over, as is typically the case, in the ankle shackles, in the wrist shackles with the chain that goes around the waist as they shuffle along. And awaiting their hearing in the rooms that were above, they were in what probably is described as a holding room. Probably about the size of that portion of the stage with uh, a bench along the back 
maybe two sides, and then some chairs that they could sit in, with a large picture window looking out into another room that was maybe a little bit larger than that holding area, and a metal door through which you could talk if you needed to. And they were conversing with their prison guard, the officer who was seated in this room by himself in a chair next to a table, and they were throwing comments back and forth to one another in what apparently was a lighthearted manner, when all of a sudden, the officer went silent and slumped in his chair. Several of the prisoners knew that something was terribly wrong. They started yelling, but no one could hear them in that room. So they took a bold move, and several of them, after banging on the door, started with their shoulders trying to push the door through and break it open, busting the locks, which they did. Now keep in mind that the officer has keys and has a firearm. Could be a very interesting situation. The crimes these men had committed were numerous. One of them, assault on a civil servant. And so here they have broken out into this room. Two men seemed to lead the way. Floyd Smith, who was the one who was being charged with assault on a civil servant. And Nick Kelton, who was a self-confessed drug addict. This was his fourth time being heard And uh, fourth time in this situation had some dire consequences to it. But when they broke into that room, about six of the eight prisoners came out, checked the guard for a pulse and couldn't find anything with their shackled hands, and started making as much noise as they could, banging on the walls, yelling, looking into cameras, trying to get the attention of someone. While hearing the noise... Sergeant Spiegel makes his way down from the room above and peeks in and sees the chaos, pulls his weapon, opens the door, and there has to be a momentary sense of tension and anxiety as they are trying to quickly and frantically explain what's going on, and he's trying to piece together all that's happened And so his first move is to herd them back into the holding cell to close the door with the broken locks to call for help as two more officers come in and begin to administer CPR with no positive results. Having called EMS, EMS shows up, use the shocker paddles on him, and he comes back to life. And it appears as if he's going to have a complete and full recovery. Fascinating story where the villains become the heroes. Just a crazy twist. It's not some book or piece of fiction. This is Weatherford, Texas. 
a twisted story that is. Our scripture reading for this morning is Luke chapter 10. You just heard it read or read it up on the screen. Has the same kind of twist to it. And in many ways, it's a story within a story. But I would propose that the story within a story is also within another story. So I'd like to take a few moments and begin to talk about those multiple layers that happen with this passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, says that the teacher of the law comes and, and he asks a question to test Jesus. This word test is not used very often in Scripture. The other time that I know that it's used is when Jesus is tempted in the desert and his response to the tempter is, do not test the Lord your God. And in this case, we have a teacher of the law who's testing Jesus. And his question was, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus' response, I, I love the response and I, and I give credit to a professor by the name of Beckerley who who pointed out the unique questions that Jesus asked. And it has been so intriguing to me to think about Scripture in this way. The first question he asked, and I believe it's in verse um, 26, is, what is written? And then he asked a second question, how do you read it? I have so often just read right through that so quickly and moved on to the rest of the story. But I love how these two questions go together. There is a reverence for the sacredness of Scripture. What is written? What do you read there? It is an anchor point for us. It is for us an understanding of this Salvation thread that goes throughout all of Scripture. The truth that is in this sacred book for us to learn and grow and to hold us steady. But the second question, how do you read it, comes right on the heels of the first. Jesus is saying, what do you think it says? What does it mean to you? And to each one of us, we bring our unique history, our experiences, our journey, the things we've read previously, the circumstances we're currently facing. We bring all of that into our reading of Scripture. And it is as if in this moment, Jesus blesses that and says, I want to know how you read it. What does it mean to you? If we stay on the wonderfulness end of the spectrum and simply ask the question, what is written, we're left with a rather sterile experience. We may discover and uncover truth, but it remains words on a page and provides very little life until we ask the question, and how do I read that? What does it mean to me today? How do I apply it? How do I put it into action? What is its relevance to my family, 
to my work, to my engagement in my community. If, on the other hand, I only rest in that question, it becomes all about me and my interpretation. The truth that's truth for me is the only truth to which I adhere, and it makes perfect sense for me, and that's my truth. But it's balanced by the first question that says, oh, so tell me what else is written. It has to fit in with all of Scripture. There is this anchor point, what is written, and this application that says, and how do you read it? And that's what Jesus does in this moment. Even though this person is testing Jesus, probably not very sincere in his questioning, probably has multiple ulterior motives, Jesus in this moment is still offering the very best. What do you read? How do you read it? As we journey together in Scripture, I think those two questions could hold us steady in all of our Bible studies and discussions and interaction. And I really love that it's asked in the context of others who are around. Because it's very easy for us to step into that place where I do this by myself. I take the faith journey alone. But I'm looking around at this crowd and I could begin to list the many times I've sat in on a small group gathering with you or a class and I've heard your comments or you've come up to me after church and mentioned your insight or your thoughts or you've sent me an email or a letter and the ways in which I have grown and thought to myself, oh, I never thought of that perspective. I need to go back to the Word again. I need to let this distill in my life because I had never thought of that person's experience or that way to look at it. It's the power of doing this in a community of faith where we're on the journey together. So the man responds and tells what he believes are the greatest commandments. Jesus said, you've answered well. And then in an attempt to justify himself, so his posture is changing a little bit from this... um, attempt to trip Jesus up to, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that interaction. Now I need to justify myself. And he asked the question, so, who's my neighbor, Mr. Rogers? What's the neighborhood in which we live? This then becomes the basis on which Jesus tells an amazing story. A story that for those who have spent much time in a church setting, particularly a Protestant church, though my guess is other faith traditions would be familiar at least with this story because it has such universal application. We have the story of the Good Samaritan. Some of you could give me all of the details right now of this story of a man who travels from Jerusalem to Jericho. A rather dangerous journey back then. And I would say from my perspective the privilege I had not too long ago of taking a trip to the Holy Land, is still a dangerous journey today. Our guide chose to not take us to Jericho because it was not a particularly safe journey for us. 
So not much has changed in this setting. This person makes this journey toward Jericho and is accosted by a thief who steals his clothing, his clothing, his possessions, beats him up, leaves him for dead. And then along comes the hero of the story. Well, at least I would think that the priest walking by would be the hero of the story, but he walks on the other side of the street. Then the hero comes, the Levite, or at least you would think that would be the hero of the story, but he walks on the other side of the street. And then comes the real hero of the story, a Samaritan. Now, there are many reasons why a Samaritan should not be the hero of this story. A despised group of people among the Jews, a um, group of people that worshipped in a different way, worshipped in a different place, didn't adhere to certain laws, religious practices or rituals. But it was the Samaritan who came by and got involved. Wasn't a bystander or a bywalker. I've been a bywalker. This story evokes for me memories of which I'm not very proud at all. Back when I did live in Oklahoma City, I had an appointment downtown in one of the high-rises downtown at an office up on the fifth floor in an elevator that didn't move very fast. I remembered because I'd been there before. And I had a tough time finding a parking space. And I had to park several blocks away and I was going to be late. And I didn't want to be late. And I knew there was no way I was going to be right on time. I was already going to be four or five minutes late. And I was so frustrated by that. I'm walking very rapidly from my car down the downtown sidewalk, and I come to an intersection, and I need to get to the kitty corner location because the high rise is over there to my left. And at the stoplight, and I don't have the walk signal on either side, and I've determined that whatever walk signal shows up first, I'm taking because I need to go across two intersection passes to get where I need to go, so I'm just looking back and forth. And I noticed beside me, seated on the ground, was someone that I initially thought was a worker. Working on the tiles or the concrete, cleaning them or fixing them was my assumption because he was seated right at the corner. And I saw the walk signal go to my left. And as I started to move, I saw that gentleman move closer to the curb straight ahead. And as I'm crossing the street... I'm thinking to myself, he was seated on the ground because he can't walk and doesn't have a wheelchair. And I turned around to confirm that what I thought was true was true. And there he sat, waiting to navigate a downtown intersection. And in my head, I am thinking I am so late. I can't be late. I got to go. Certainly, he's not trying to cross the street. That can't be. I must have misunderstood. 
I kept on walking. I got across that intersection, and immediately the light changed to go across. And I started walking, and I thought, Dee, what in the world are you doing? Being late for an appointment just to offer, whether he needs it or not. And I thought to myself, you're an idiot. And I turned around to look, and I saw an amazingly wonderful good Samaritan who had the gentleman in his arms crossing parallel with me at the intersection. And I watched as I, carried, as I saw him carried to the other side and sit him at a half wall in front of a high rise, which was where he was headed. And I realized, priest, Levite, D. Kelly, a bywalker on the other side. What in the world was I doing with my faith? Nothing. Talk a good game. Give myself to uh, principles that I say I believe in. We were side by side. All it took was to observe an offer. And I didn't. The story was me in in this story of the Good Samaritan. I was the first two. Story within the story of this, though. We've got the story of the teacher of the law and all that's going on as this teacher gets taught. We have this amazing story that Jesus tells to provide an amazing lesson. But I feel like there's also a context in which Jesus is telling this story that's bigger than the teacher of the law. I mentioned last week at the very end of chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, there is the story of Jesus resolutely setting his sights on Jerusalem. So they leave the area of Galilee and head down to Jerusalem. And he sends some of his disciples ahead. You remember me saying this if you were here last week. The disciples go ahead to prepare the way into the area of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were inhospitable. They weren't going to provide for anything that they wanted as they came through. They weren't interested at all in entertaining the group as they passed through that way. And two of the disciples came back to tell that to Jesus, James and John, the sons of thunder. And their solution was, Lord... Let's just call down fire from heaven, destroy them all, and we can have free passage and do anything we want in that community. What a great plan. Jesus rebukes them. Didn't say much more, just rebuked them. But they were inhospitable. They were unwelcoming. They were creating this division, or at least participating in it, complicit in it, And then, shortly after that, Jesus sends out the 72. And when they come back, in chapter 10, he makes mention of those communities that are not hospitable, are not receptive to the good news. And he says it will be better for them than it was for Sodom when they were inhospitable to those who came to their town. Jesus acknowledges the division, the conflict, 
And in the midst of that setting, Jesus chooses to make the hero of the story a Samaritan. Many of you have seen the stories that have been blasted over the airwaves this week and the previous week. It's unsettling, it's discouraging, it's infuriating. So many emotions start flying. In various places around our country, Alton Sterling, Anna, Louisiana. Mr. Castile. Can't pronounce his name very well. Philarmo, I think is what it's called. Castile. Up in Minnesota. Lauren Aarons. Dallas. Some of his colleagues. Michael Smith. Michael Kroll, Patrick, Zamaripa, Brent Thompson, and Micah lost their lives in horrific violence. There are hundreds others in our country who died this past week. But those get splashed in front of our face because they give testimony to some of the things that are taking place in our country. And whether intended to or not, they give testimony to the truth that violence breeds violence. That anger unchecked gives way to hatred. That resentment, when it festers, begins to give way to this toxic planning of revenge that escalates as Violent birth gives birth to the next bit of violence again and again. I don't know of anything that stops that cycle except love. I don't know what keeps that next step in the process from going until somehow, some way, there is into that moment an intervention where love stops that progression. It is depicted in the disciples. When they're treated harshly, their response is, well, let's just return the favor. If they're going to do that, here's what we're going to do to them. Jesus says no. 
Jesus takes a bizarre step in this. And in the story, I think that Jesus proposes what can happen when the other is viewed through the lens of being a potential hero. What? Everyone has the potential to be a hero. What if I viewed that in the other person? Maybe this notion of neighbor takes on new meaning because the truth of the story is the question begins, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, who's acting neighborly? Go thou and be neighborly. Well, that feels so Mr. Roger-ish that we lose some of the, the deep power of what it means for the Samaritan to be called out as the one acting neighborly. It is to view the other as the potential hero. That's what those who were in the holding room became. The villain through their lens... The villain in that room was the guard who had shackled them up, who had marched them to the room, who had held them captive till they get tried. Certainly, we can say he's just doing his job, but in many ways for them, he becomes the villain. But when the moment of need arises, those that our culture views as the villain all of a sudden become the heroes of the story because they act and engage and participate. I'd like to get myself off the hook. I know I didn't with that story in Oklahoma, but I'd like to say I've done so well in learning my lesson. I, I am never the one who lets it give birth to something else, to something else until something horrific happens. But the truth is, it happens to me more often than I would like to say. In my home, I, I love my wife, I, I love my family and my home. There are times when something happens that I interpret through my own lens and I keep a record of wrong. And it gives birth to resentment and self-pity and gives birth to anger and frustration. And I realize that there's a breach in this relationship when the truth is that my wife is the hero of just about every good story in my life. Same with my kids. I know I'm the one that's supposed to act with maturity, that I'm supposed to be the adult, that I'm supposed to be the parent who understands how to handle difficult situations. But it certainly is possible when the right buttons are pushed for me to just get so frustrated and it starts building up this little toxic thing that happens inside and and I find myself aggravated, going silent while I just let it fester and seethe. And then I realize that my kids are the heroes of so many stories in my life, of all those good things that come through them. 
Am I going to let that progression happen? The only thing that stops that is to recognize what's taking place and say, love stops it. It intervenes. It changes things. It brings an end to one cycle and starts another one. Who's going to do that? We find ourselves preoccupied with the last hurt. We become identified by our history instead of by what can happen in the present. We lose a sense of hope for the future. We fall prey to what we were cautioned about just this week. Let this not identify us as a group of people. But how can it not, if we don't, offer something different? Where? Well, here. To the person that's this close to me at the crossing mark. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, in the places where God places you and me. I'm telling you, if you look at the other person and create a storyline where they become the hero, it's really tough to operate in that old mindset. It calls us and beckons us to a place where being neighborly becomes a passion where letting down entitlement becomes easy and using my resources like this amazing Samaritan who not only got involved, gave of his time and of his resources, but said, and I'm going to check back in. What? I can do the momentary thing, but to stay involved? Now that's asking a lot. Yeah, it is. That's what love does. That's what Jesus calls us to. And I'm convinced there are a lot of things that can buffer and hold back a rising tide, but the only thing that ultimately changes the circumstances we are seeing are people who are going to get involved to participate with love in action. Love engaged. So I come back to the two questions. What's written? And how do you read it? What will you do with God's word in your life this week? Bystander? Bywalker? Or Samaritan.